Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. As you may have guessed, we are going to temporarily pause our study of the book of Acts because as we draw near to Easter season, we want to reflect on those things that God has done in time and space and human history to solve the problem that we caused and we couldn't fix for ourselves. And yet God in his perfect love and in his perfect grace has extended mercy to us by sending his very own son to die on the cross to atone for our sins. And he raised him from the dead to secure our justification, our right standing before God. And so that's the ultimate meaning of this season. And while those truths are true, regardless of what day of the year it happens to be, our church calendar helps us to reflect on these things, at least at this time each year. Uh, And so I'm glad for the opportunity to step into this over the course of the next few weeks. So here's kind of the, the trajectory that we're going to be on. Uh, Today we're going to focus in on Jesus's Last Supper. Jesus's meal at a Passover Seder uh, with his disciples before being arrested, before going to the cross, because it is in the context of this particular meal that Jesus gives them the significance of what is about to take place as he goes to his death. And then next week we're going to take a look at the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to take a look at his death, why it was necessary, what it accomplished, how it accomplished it, and we're going to take a look at all those facets of the crucifixion, of Jesus's atoning death. And then finally, of course, we're going to end at the resurrection of Jesus, the discovery of the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances of Jesus, and what is the significance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, both for us now as Christ followers, but also one day when we too will be raised from the dead. And so this is our trajectory over the next three weeks. And so today we're going to start with, of course, the Last Supper. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be reading verses 17 through 30 today. Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30. And here's what it says. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. 
Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so this was Jesus' Last Supper. This is what we commemorate together when we celebrate the Lord's table together. Uh, And so it's important for us to understand the significance of this. Yes, the significance for what what it foreshadows in Jesus' death, which is a short time coming after this event, historically. But also, this is not an accident that this supper and these words were spoken over the course of a Passover meal, a Passover Seder. In fact, It's because it was Passover that this all transpired in this way because Jesus' words, the significance of his atoning death, don't just point forward, but are deeply connected to the actual initial Passover event. And so I want to talk a little bit about this. For those of you who it's been a while since you read the book of Exodus uh, or heard the story of Moses and the Israelites being led out of Egypt, uh, let me go ahead and give you just a little bit of a background here. And so, of course, at the end of the book of Genesis, we see that the patriarchs had made their way to Egypt. They had not yet taken possession of the land that God had promised them. And God brought them to Egypt by his providence so that they might survive a famine. And Joseph, uh, even though he had many unfortunate events over the course of his life, God had used them to raise him up to a very high position in Pharaoh's administration. And he was able to provide not just for Egypt, but for his family. And so the, the Hebrews settled down in Egypt and things are good at the end of Genesis. However, when we open up to the next book, the book of Exodus, things have changed. 400 years have transpired, and the fate of the Hebrews in the land of Egypt has certainly changed. God has blessed them during their time in Egypt. They have multiplied into a great nation, and because of their numbers, the Pharaoh that came to power had no significance in his heart for the Jewish people, for the Hebrews, and he saw them as a potential threat. For certainly, if one of Egypt's armies came and was able to solicit the Hebrews to join them against the Egyptians, they would be a powerful force attacking from within. And so he oppressed the Hebrews, enslaving them to the work of the Egyptians. And so when we open up to the beginning of Exodus, things are really, really bad. And so God, in his great mercy orchestrates the deliverance of this people group, the Hebrews, from their slavery in Egypt, that they might come and be the people that he has called them to be, covenant with them the way he intended, and ultimately lead them to the promised land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so to do this, God raised up a man by the name of Moses. And we all know the story. Uh, God demonstrated his power in numerous plagues against the Egyptians. And the last 
plague, if you will, uh, came and broke, broke the, there was a straw that broke the camel's back. It was the one that got the job done. But I want to reflect on it a little bit because it's this last plague, the death of the firstborn, that is significant to our Passover story. In fact, Passover is not about all the plagues. Passover is about that very last one. If you remember, God was sending death, if you will. He was sending his judgment upon the land of, of Egypt. And he had instructed the Jews through Moses to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of the home so that when death came, when God's judgment came, it would come to the door, see the blood on the doorposts, and pass over that home and go on. So that it turned out that it was only the Egyptians who had a death or multiple deaths in their home. And so in this way, God provided providence to the Jewish people, but also judged the Egyptians and essentially uh, secured their freedom from Egypt. But here's the thing. When we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, we have to ask questions. In fact, I am quite convinced that we cannot come to a satisfactory answer in terms of the interpretation of any passage in Scripture if we don't first ask of the text some important questions. Now, it might seem weird to ask certain questions of the text. Are we being overly critical? But we, we, we want to ask questions that help us derive at answers. For instance, there are some questions that we should ask in relation to this last plague. For instance, why didn't God just attack the Egyptians? In other words, why must the Israelites put blood on their doorposts lest they too receive the punishment? Now, this is God we're talking about, right? Certainly, he is more than capable of a, of, a, of a precision strike going after just the Egyptians. Certainly, God knew which homes were Israelite homes and which homes were Egyptian homes. Why was it necessary that lambs were slaughtered and blood was put on the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites? There's a question we need to ask of the text. Here's another question. Why not only punish Pharaoh's family? After all, it was Pharaoh who had a hardened heart toward God and toward the Hebrews and would not allow them to go, right? Why the innocent Egyptians? Why, why those who were not engaged in this whole affair, why did they too have to suffer? And so these seem like hard questions, but they're important questions, and they're questions that there are answers to. And I think that the best way to understand it is this, that this judgment that was coming, death, this was judgment for sin. And it was coming upon all of the sinners. So what does that mean? This judgment was coming on all of the people. It was coming on every single Egyptian from Pharaoh down to the lowest Egyptian. It was coming on both Egyptian and it was coming on Hebrew as well. Every single person, because every single person was guilty of sin. And yet in his grace, God provided a substitute for his called people. God provided a substitute so that the Hebrews did not receive the just punishment for their sin. Instead, a lamb was slain instead, and its blood was shed instead of Hebrew blood. 
And so here's what we see. And there's precedent for this throughout Scripture. If we look even earlier in the book of Genesis, have you ever wondered why God would call Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? This is the same God who other places in the Old Testament found the practice of human sacrifice abhorrent. And yet here he calls a man to sacrifice his own son, and we should ask of that text, what on earth is going on? And again, the issue is a matter of sin and penalty for sin. And what, in, and what did God do in that moment? But at the last moment before Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac, he stopped him and provided a substitute, an animal that was trapped in a thicket nearby that it would die instead of Isaac. And this is yet another example in the Passover of God's grace. Now, it's not that the Egyptians or Pharaoh or anybody else who didn't have blood on their doorposts were judged wrongly. They received the just consequences of their sin. They were due that judgment, as was the Hebrews, and yet what we see in Passover is, a is, is God's provision of a substitute, God's grace extended to those who did not deserve grace. And so oftentimes when we think about Passover, even the way it's celebrated today, we often reflect on God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery, and certainly that's a part of it. But it's not all of it. It's also God's grace and generosity in passing over the Israelites when judgment came upon the land in which they were a part of that as well. And so ever since then, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of the Hebrews have celebrated annually the Passover, this commemoration of what God has done in time and space and human history to deliver them from slavery and also to exercise his grace upon them. And so every single year there is a Passover Seder. Seven days of which there's at least one, sometimes two meals that commemorate these things. And the Seder is essentially a service. Now it happens at a home, usually. It happens around a table. It happens around a meal. But there are elements throughout it that are all intended to reflect upon the things that happen in that first Passover. It is very much a worship service, if you will. And in Jesus' day, which was about 1,500 years after the first Passover, the Jewish people certainly did continue to celebrate Passover and these elements of the Passover Seder. While I'd love to go into all of the different aspects of it, uh, we don't have time for that quite today, but I do want to focus in on one particular one, one that we're drawn our attention to in the gospel stories of Jesus' Last Supper. And that's this, that one of the elements of the Passover meal that commemorates that first Passover are cups, cups filled with wine or grape juice, uh, but Cup, these four cups, and they are supposed to take place at different points throughout the Seder. And the third cup, the third of these four, is taken after the meal. And that's significant for a couple reasons. First of all, we know that it's this third cup that Jesus draws attention to in these narratives because it says after supper he took the cup. 
and the third cup of the Seder would have taken place after the meal. And this third cup is significant because it is called the cup of redemption, and it remembers, it signifies the slaying of that lamb who was killed as a substitute for the Hebrew people. It, was, it, it commemorates the lamb who was slain, whose blood was put upon the doorpost so that when God's just judgment came on a sinful people, it saw the blood and it passed over them. Wow. It's a picture of atonement. It's a picture of covering for sin. It's a picture of protection from judgment. It's a picture of God's grace that's commemorated every time, even today, when Jewish people take do the Passover Seder and hold up that third cup and drink of it. They're remembering these things. And Jesus is saying that this third cup, this cup of redemption, this cup that is inextricably tied to the lamb that was slain as a substitute, this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. We see in Matthew 26, verses 27 to 28, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. It says, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus relates what his death will accomplish with the function of the Passover lamb. And so as he's looking forward to what's just about to transpire, his arrest, his condemnation by the Sanhedrin, his condemnation by Pilate, his crucifixion, his death is, it corresponds to that lamb that was slain in Egypt all those years ago to provide grace and a substitute for the Jewish people that they might not suffer the consequences of their sin. We know that Paul understood Jesus in this way. We see in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he uses Passover language. And here's what he says. He says, get rid of the old yeast so that, you may not, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so here's Paul writing in instruction to this church at Corinth. And here, too, he hearkens back to this idea that Jesus is, in fact, our Passover lamb. Again, it's no accident that these events took place around the Passover, for certainly Jesus was drawing the conclusion that that first Passover lamb that was slain in Egypt was foreshadowing, was a type of Jesus who would ultimately come to be the sacrifice that atoned for sin, that protected from judgment, that was a substitute for us. So why was it necessary? Why was it necessary for Jesus to go to his death? And of course, the answer is sin, right? For the, for the Israelites in Egypt all those years ago, it was because of sin that death was coming, not just for the Egyptians, but for them as well. And it was because of their sin that God, if he was to provide grace, had to provide a substitute. And why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Again, the problem is sin. 
Because all of us, every single man, woman, and child, sins in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, all the time, in rebellion against God, in rebellion against one another, we do think and say things that are utterly wrong, that fall short of God's perfect standard of morality. And yet God, by his grace, doesn't condemn us for that, or rather, we, are, we do stand condemned for that. However, in his grace and because of his love, he gave us a way out, a covering for sin, a substitute. And that substitute was his son, Jesus. And so let's first take a look at the Jewish people. Those are the ones that Jesus came first to, right? Jesus came through this line of Abraham. So let's talk about this because somebody might be thinking, well, wait a second. Didn't the Jewish people have a sacrificial system? Didn't they have a tabernacle and then later a temple by which sacrifices for atonement can be made? Didn't they have a day of atonement that goes on every single year when God allows the high priest to make atonement for the people? So why was Jesus' sacrifice even necessary for the Jews? And I think that the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, puts this really well. Here's what he says. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow. What a beautiful picture we have here, and I absolutely love verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has, been, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so in that one line we see that as we stand before God in light of Christ's sacrifice, we are forever made perfect. However, it's clear that we, since we continue to do wrong, we continue to fail, that we're not yet holy. 
And so God has forever made us perfect, but he is still working on us. So we are justified before God and yet still being sanctified, cleansed, purified, formed more and more into the image of Christ. But in these words in Hebrews, we see that the sacrificial system was prescribed in the law by God. It was good, but it was temporary. In fact, it served a temporary function in covering sins for a time or making them ceremonially clean before God, but not ultimately, because every time somebody sinned, the nation had to keep coming back and performing more and more sacrifices because sins continued and the sacrifice did not cover perpetually. This was a foreshadow of the one who would come again because Jesus is the permanent sacrifice. His sacrifice was permanent, is permanent. It's intended to atone for sins past, present, and future for these Jewish people they had applied themselves to the sacrifices of the temple for so long, and yet God was bringing about a substitute that would be a permanent fix, a permanent atonement, that they might stand justified before God forever. But not just the Jewish people. The Jewish people needed Jesus, and so do the Gentiles. Because if you remember, God is not just the God of one ethnic group. God is the God of the entire world. And so the Jewish people were certainly God's chosen and beloved instrument through which the Messiah would come, through which salvation would come, through which the gospel would be uh, taken from the Jewish people to the Gentiles and across the entire world. And so they serve, they have a high place in God's economy, a high place in God's salvific plan. God, they are still loved of God, but God is the God of the whole world. We see that all the way back at the beginning. God is the only one who created all things and all people. And Adam and Eve were everybody's great, 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 great grandparents, right? And yet all people fell into sin in a world that became broken. All people needed to be reconciled to God. And so God sent Jesus not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. That all people, whether or not they had a sacrificial system that covered temporarily the sins that were being committed, whether or not they had for many generations the, God, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible, God was redeeming all people through Jesus and the gospel message goes forth to all people that all people's sins might be completely covered in Christ's atonement. And so for those of us who maybe have not yet responded to this, have not yet given our life to Jesus, have not yet received the gospel, that despite how bad we've been, despite our rebellion, despite our, our, our wicked thoughts, our wicked words, and our wicked deeds, God loved us enough to send Jesus to pay the price, to take the consequence for our sins. So maybe we haven't accepted that yet. Maybe today's the day we need to. Maybe today's the day before it's too late to come to terms with the fact that God does love us and has given us an escape route, has given us a substitute, and we could choose either to avail ourselves of it or not. If we don't, then we continue to stand condemned. We continue to stand in the very just consequences for our own actions. Or... We could say, thank you, Lord, and accept what God has done for us. Believe what he has done. Believe in Jesus. Believe in God. 
believe the gospel and surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. For those of us who have already done that, well then, this is a wonderful time of year and these are wonderful truths that we need to remind ourselves of because we have work to do, right? Jesus doesn't call us to just sit back, receive this salvation and say thank you and that's the end. But he's also commissioned us to proclaim Christ's atonement to the entire world. We are to take the gospel message to those who don't yet have it, who those who have not yet responded to it. And so that's our great high calling, to let others know that God loves them and what he has done for them because of his love and compassion. And in this time of year especially, perhaps, we need to remember what Christ has done and we need to celebrate it together. Because this isn't just some truth that gets old, gets boring, loses its value over time. In fact, this, is the, this should be the driving force of our lives. This should be the impetus for our worship of God for, and for serving him throughout our lives is in response to this great act of mercy and love and grace that God has bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ and his willingness to die as a substitute, to die in our place, to die our condemnation that we might go free.